Okay, um, the great divorce. I don't know if people were able to read it or not. Um, it's a it's a bit peculiar of a book. Uh, in the so how well how we envision the class being taught um, is uh, well you know we'll talk a little bit about the summary of the book and uh, talk about characters. It's really character driven. I mean the the plot is very simple. Uh, I think I wrote a sentence or two up there. This man is coming from the gray city to this paradise. And so far in the first two chapters, you, we're not quite sure exactly where this place is. But that's basically it. Now, of course, the book is whatever, 100-some pages, so it, there has to be more to the, to the story. And it's, it's, it's these people that this man um, meets. And you don't know the man's name, narrator, along the way. Okay, so as you read it, pay attention to the characters. They're minor characters, they're major characters, and then pay attention to the narrator too. Because the narrator, as you read it, uh, at certain times feels like he's an observer, like he's kind of watching this and staying on the peripheral. But at the same time, though, he is, he is in the story too. And the narrator doesn't necessarily have everything figured out right away. Okay, so there's a change in the narrator too. Okay, I think that I think that's about that's all you really need to say about the book so far. Um, now, the title of the book, "The Great Divorce," I don't know if Pastor Bukes mentioned this at all, so I'm just going to pretend he didn't. Uh, it, it, it's not about marriage between a man and a woman. It's, it is actually a play on a title of a William uh, Blake's uh, set of poems called The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Uh, and so C.S. Lewis is basically saying, well, that, that can't actually exist. Um, now, William Blake's uh, series of poems about the marriage of heaven and hell, is, the basic kind of premise is that um, in order to have good, you need to have evil, and that good can come from evil. And... Um, so evil, in a sense, is kind of good. So um, it's uh, to a certain extent, you know. I mean, there's people who kind of, you know, when we kind of talk about like, well, there's good that still can come to, from this. Uh, that's not really true. However, um, C.S. Lewis in the preface, and if you haven't had a chance to read it. Actually, do read the preface. It's like two pages or something. Um, he kind of makes that clear how we should maybe, yeah, maybe we might say that, oh, even good can come from this. Um, but that doesn't mean good actually comes from evil. Uh, I, I don't know if I, well, by the way, there's so many quotes in this book, too. Uh, and there's so many questions that might come up from this book that, um, it's really impossible to discuss everything, so please make sure if you have any specific questions to ask them. Well, yeah, I, know, I was going to say there's eight million other people who have uh, read this book and got their own thoughts on it too. So you could Google it too. Um, but anyways, I, I say that uh, mainly because, um, well, uh, the things that we talk about today, I don't have any illusion that it's that's all there is to talk about. So. Um, but anyways, so, so the idea is that um, evil 
good can't come from evil. Evil needs to be undone in order for good to be to, to exist, to come forth. And um, so that's Lewis's premise. Whether it's true or not or, or whatever, you know, we can discuss that. But anyways, so there is no marriage uh, between heaven and hell. And George MacDonald, who C.S. Lewis kind of considers a mentor. Now, he lived before C.S. Lewis, and he comes along in, in the book later on. Just character. I mean, he's a, he was a real person, but he's a character in the book. Um, there's a quote here. Uh, no, there is no escape. There's no heaven with a little hell in it. No plan to retain this or that of the devil in our hearts or our pockets. Out Satan must go, every hair and feather. So, um, so why can't there be a marriage of heaven and hell? Why can't there be a marriage of good and evil, in a sense? Why not? Okay, yep. So God can't, he's uh, just, he's pure, he's holy, and he, his, his character, he can't, well, if in order for him to be pure, holy, and just, he can't allow impurity, unholiness, and un- injustice. Okay, so, so there has to be something done with that. And if you don't get that, then the, I mean, you got to get that right away in the book. Because there is a, the, base, the basic discussion of the book is what are uh, what sort of things are these characters still trying to hang on to? Okay, as well, I'll, I'll, I'll let I'll let it out. They're coming from the gray city that could be hell, could be the edge of hell, could be purgatory. Could be, uh, uh, it, it's, it's this place, it's not heaven, let's put it that way. And they're taking this, this bus ride to paradise, to heaven, okay? So, um, in order to enter into heaven, though, they, they, can't, they can't bring a little bit of the gray city with them. And they can't even bring what they had on earth with them. They have to let it go. Okay, so um, so this is why the great divorce. There is there is an either or aspect when it, when we talk about heaven and hell. We're actually going to talk a little bit about heaven and hell later on in chapter nine because George MacDonald and the narrator have this kind of discussion. So we'll kind of when we get to that, we'll bring back a little bit of what we what you've hopefully have read in chapters one and two. So. But um, anyways, so that, that, that's, that's kind of the base, basic idea behind the title, The Great Divorce, is that there is, a, there is a divorce between heaven and hell. Of course, where do we see this in Scripture? There's a, I mean, it's a nice story in Luke about a poor man and a rich man. Yeah. Lazarus, the poor man, and the rich man, and... The rich man goes to hell, and Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, which I don't know what that means, but um, somewhere nice. Um, you know, I don't know. But um, 
uh, it was, and there's a great there's a great chasm between the two. You know, you can't cross it. And uh, of course, the man says, "Well, you know, go tell my family. You know, because they don't come here." And and Abraham says, "You know, even if someone raises from the dead, well, they don't have to because they have Moses and the prophets. But even if someone raises from the dead, they they might not believe, or they won't believe." All right, so so that's a picture of that. And I use the Gospel of Luke today to kind of think about this either or business. Uh, although it's, it's it's all over scripture, I just use Luke because it's easier to spend one time in one book of the Bible. All right, so the characters in the first two chapters, we have the narrator, who's this man, and uh, he, he's he's a man of learning. I think we learned that in a little bit. Um, and there's theories that it might, it might be Lewis, C.S. Lewis himself, like he's writing himself into the story. I don't know. I don't think it matters. All right, and now we have a young man, uh, a poet, uh, which I don't even know what this means. Uh, a, is a tussle-headed poet? How do you say that word? Tassel? Does that mean like messy hair? Yeah. I don't even know what that means. Yeah. And I did not Google it. <laughs> so I, I didn't check. Okay, so a young, spirited, messy hair poet. All right, so very typical. Excellent. In terms of, you know, the... Poetry type guys. He probably has a cigarette in his mouth and a beard now. Hipster. He's probably a hipster. Uh, and then you have an intelligent. Well, there's a bunch of characters, but I, I think the like the, the the main ones are the narrator, the poet, and the intelligent man. Who he's he's got some issues going on too. Now, in reading it though, even with the minor characters, because you have these strange. Uh, these twins, these two trouser-wearing twins, I guess. I don't know. He doesn't know if they're male or female. He can't figure that out. You have those minor ones, and then you have, like, the short man and the big man. One guy gets punched in the face and peculiar things. Um, Anyways, uh, what is the seemingly one trait all the characters have in common? For those who have read it. Yeah, Yeah, self-absorption. I mean, they're they're essentially like selfish, self-referential. Uh, every character, even their narrator. So the narrator. So the story goes is the yeah, this guy. It's just it's the story just shows up, and he's uh, standing in line at the bus stop, the queue. Uh, and uh, his he, he's he's really excited about standing you know waiting for the bus. And he's so excited, though, because every time something awful happens, like some guy gets punched in the face, and then some woman is uh, enticed to get out of line in order to get, like, five quid, five, five pounds, or a five-pound note. But then they just, they just cut him out, cut her out. And every time that happens, he's like, ooh, good, I get farther and farther up. You know, what luck. So uh, on a certain level, I think... As you read it, you're you're trying to like, hey, this is the guy I'm supposed to like. Well, he, yeah, yes. I mean, you're gonna pull for him. Um, I don't I don't know if we ever read a book where we really hate the main character, but um, he's not necessarily likable. So yeah, all of them have are self-absorbed, and we see this though in spades with respect to the gray city. 
What describe the gray city for? Because I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't put that in there. But uh, or gray town. What, what is the gray town like? It's gray. Let's see. Krista. Krista. I saw it for me, but it was very depressing. Well, it is depressing. I'm all shabby. Yeah, uh, the man, the narrator says all these houses and streets, but yet I've seen no one. Now, why does he not see anyone? Because they keep moving. They have a little quarrel with their neighbors. and then They keep moving out to the edge of town. Yeah. So, basically, you don't see anybody because no one wants to be seen. No one wants to be in the town. Well, the thing about the town, though, is what? Can you ever really leave the town? No. No, in fact, when he goes, yeah, when he goes up on the magic bus ride... He looks out, and as far as the eye can see are houses. It's like one huge town, which uh, is like Star Wars. Coruscant is one huge city. But anyways, <laughs> I, I didn't know if, that, I don't know if, there, if there was a, 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 a parallel there, but I thought there might be. I don't know. Okay. Anyways. Yes. So, so it's, it's a town that's shabby. It's infinite. And uh, even though it's a town, it seems like no one's around. I mean... Everyone's unto themselves. So as we think about the self-referential aspect of these people, you know, this kind of self-absorption, selfishness, they're, they're curved in on themselves. And I believe in mere Christianity, Pastor Bukes brought this up, this incurvatus s, which is a Lutheranese term. Uh, sin is basically being turned in on yourself. The inability to look outside yourself. So your entire reality is all about you. And as we see these characters, we'll kind of see how that manifests itself. The town is also not really real. In that well, yeah, okay. But you only know that later, though. Well, yeah, from one in, in the second chapter. Right. Perfect. And it's perfect with all this stuff, but it's not really. Well, yeah, so the intelligent, I th- that, is that what the intelligent man right, or is it the poet? I can't remember who, this discussion. So the, the idea is that all you have to do to get at your house is think it. And um, the explanation, I know, which would be helpful, right? <laughs> which actually goes to something that I think we should maybe think about or talk about. Uh, so we'll come back to that. But um, it, it, So the idea is that if you, you think of this house, it comes about, and the explanation is, although it's not actually real. Now, we don't understand exactly what that means until a little bit later when we find out when they step outside of the bus at the foothills of this, this place, this paradise place, um, because then they find out that they're, they're really ghosts and what that means when you actually experience real things so but yeah the, so all you got to do is think it now one of the interesting things too about this whole gray city is that do, do they have any needs they have no needs isn't that interesting what are the ramifications if we have uh if we get everything we want or, or we maybe that's not that's not precisely what he's saying 
uh, if you have everything you need. Well, okay, yes, right, you have no economy, which the intelligent man wants to create. But we should get back to that, because that's a good idea, but does he do it? Does he, yeah, so there's reasons why he wants that. Uh, Cindy. Right. Okay, I don't know if you were struck to the bone, but most people in American society, this, this should rub up against us like nobody's business. Because in this, in this gray city, which we will find out is pro- most likely hell, uh, everyone is completely independent. There is no reason to be dependent upon others, and there's no reason for people to be dependent upon you. So... Okay, so some of our values in our society today, you need to be self-made, you know, you don't want to put any pressure on anybody for them to help you out. Lewis is essentially saying that's a reflection of a sinful society. Now, of course, we can mistake that as saying, Oh, hey, I'm just I, I'm I'm thinking about myself, so I'm just going to ask everything from everybody. That's true. That can happen, but that is not that's not what's going on here. Is that there, there's there's a basic premise that uh, a, 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 a community or society that depends on one another is a society that develops relationships and and unity and, of course, community. And I think that this is really, really interesting for us because when we... So, so in order for that to happen, what do you have to say about yourself? I have needs. I, have needs. I can't do it on my own. Okay, so th- this is what we're going to read throughout the book is you're going to have a, all these characters, and since they're self-referential, curved in on themselves, they believe that they can do it on their own. And even those who say they they uh, they will long, so you have the young poet, right? Who he to a certain extent, when you start reading this young poet who comes up to the narrator on the magic bus, says, "Boy, I can't believe these other people are going to where we're going. I, they're not, you know, this place is going to be great." So I said, "Oh, you're like, man, does this does he know what's like where they're going, what's going on?" And to a certain extent, he does. However, he is still thinking about himself. He's going to heaven to get what he what deserves. deserves. He's a smart guy. He's smarter than all five colleges that he went to. And he never got the recognition that was coming to him. But when he gets to heaven, finally, he's going to get what he deserves. And it's awesome. He thinks it's going to be great. It's going to be a wonderful place. But, of course, he's not thinking about, he's still thinking about himself. So he's still, he has this very self-referential, and uh, he obviously needs to be rid of that. So anyways, so, so this is the underlying uh, outlook for basically every character that is on the magic bus or the narrator meets on the foothills of paradise, who 
at some time took a magic bus ride before. So, or, or maybe after. We don't. Time is kind of fluid. Okay. Anyways, so this is really important because we're going to spend a lot of time thinking about that. And part of, the, part of the issue about the book, though, is I think I wrote this down. Um, I, I think I wrote a question like this. It came up in my brain. Oh, oh, so will a narrator uh, be confronted with what he's hanging on to in the book? Like, in the book, will he be confronted what he's struggling with? Will he be confronted how he thinks about himself only? And, and by doing these characters, hopefully as we read it, you know, we'll think about those things that we're hanging on to. You know, we have a default because of our sinful nature of thinking about ourselves first. It, I mean, it's just, it's a default. We can, I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's impossible to help. I mean, you just, we, need, we need someone to help us. We're dependent on somebody, mainly God. Uh, and so um, I, I think as we read this, we've we got to think about these characters, and we can't say to this character, you know, what's wrong with this guy? How could he think that? Or I know someone like that, as if, you know, it's somebody else's problem. Now, because uh, that will be the danger of pride. So, I've read the book like three times, and every time I read it, I'm, I do that all the time. I'm like, oh, I know someone like this. As if I'm not like that. <laughs> so, maybe this is more about me. Maybe I'm talking to myself, very self-referential. So, okay. Um, all right, I, okay, I think with that said, we don't want to get too far. Was there any, for those who were able to read it, are there any questions uh, about the book that we you just want to start off right away with? Krista. <laughs> I, I don't know if I understood it right, but I thought it was very comforting that hell has a door, um, and it's not shut from outside, but you can open it from right. outside. Yes, that, that's a very good. So, so uh, Lewis's premise, and actually this is... Um, there were some medieval theologians who thought that, um, you know, perhaps people in hell got a holiday, basically. <laughs> and, um, and the only way you could do that, though, is if, if it was open from the inside. You know, I mean, so it wasn't locked from the outside. So um, I th- this is a very interesting premise uh, about Lewis's understanding of hell, that hell, if it's locked, if the door's locked, it's locked from the inside, not from the outside. Well, of course, we have to ask ourselves, is that even true? I mean, it, could that be, or could be that true? Obviously, there's not a Bible verse that says, that describes the locks in heaven, or in, in hell, okay? I mean, but, um, so we have to think about the ramifications of that. And, you know, if, if, it's, um, if it's true or not, theoretically, of course, because we don't have a word from Scripture that talks about locks in hell and heaven. So, um, now, in order to ask ourselves if that's true or not, we have to ask ourselves, is God in hell? It could be a trick question. <laughs> yep. Um, okay, so, so uh, now, so we have, we have a little dilemma here, right? Like, if God's in hell, you know, what, what's going on down there? What is he doing down there? Um, in, uh, in Psalm, uh, did I write this down? I think I took that out. There was like five or six pages of stuff, and I tried to get it down to two. 
Um, like in, in the story of Jonah, Martin Luther, someone asked, Martin Luther just kind of comments on how, you know, God's, God's in hell, basically, because Jonah went to Sheol, and lo and behold, God's there. Um, and I, I can't remember which psalm off the top of my head. Psalm 51, maybe 61, where even if I go to Sheol, Sheol, you're there. I can't get away from you, God. That's a, that's a positive thing. So, um, and then, of course, we have the Apostles' Creed. Christ descended into hell. Well, first Peter, he went down to the prisons, which we, uh, Gehenna. There's a literal place called Gehenna, and then there's a metaphor, medical, uh, medical, <laughs> metaphorical use of Gehenna. Um, yeah, so Jesus went to the prisons to preach to them, set them free. Now, admit, during the Middle Ages, though, oftentimes, and I think Martin Luther talked about this, uh, Jesus goes to hell to, like, stick it in the nose of the devil. Uh, that's one interpretation. Like, he went to go to hell to show them how he was victorious over them. Um, but, but then we have these peculiar passages in First Peter and then the Psalm where God being in hell is a good thing as if he, he's going to take him out of there. So, Holly. And when we always talk about um, hell being the absence of Yes. This is where um, I think the image in The Great Divorce is really helpful. Because is it God's absence that is the problem in hell, or is it the the, the people's uh, rejection of God's presence that's the problem? Because um, in that discussion with the intelligent man, right, he says, you know, like basically anybody can come to the bus stop, right? But the problem is, is they keep moving farther and farther and farther away from this bus stop. Right, millions of miles away, or something like that, and there's a story. Light, yeah, I mean, it's 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 just beyond imagination. And there was the story about two men. I think it was two men who went on the search to find Napoleon, and they found him. And he was just talking to himself, blaming. I can't remember blaming someone for his losses or something like that. Um. So the, there's this theory, I mean, the, the idea in the book is that theoretically people can come to this bus stop, but they've just chosen not to. So that's one aspect. The other aspect, though, of course, is God is everywhere. The question is, where is he for you? Where is he working for you, for your salvation? This is why, you know, as, as Christians, we're not pantheists. And William Blake, actually, not to get too much on a tangent here, but William Blake's uh, Marriage of Heaven and Hell, he kind of says everything is holy. Um, when we have these distinctions of good and evil, we're actually we're, we're calling uh, something that's good, but actually is sided with the devil, and we, we're not quite getting all this correctly. So God is everywhere, but as Christians, we, we yeah, of course God is everywhere. The question is, where is he fighting for you? Where is he working for you? Where has he promised to be to deliver you from sin, death, and the devil? Well, hell is not one of those places where he's promised to deliver you. He, he's promised to deli- uh, deliver you from hell, 
but it, it's, it's at the cross, at the death and resurrection, and the places where he distributes the benefits of the death and resurrection. Holy baptism, preaching, confession, absolution, altar, you know, the sacraments. So this is where uh, I, I think why well, I, I believe Lewis is, is kind of discussing the ramifications of this, this reality, that God is present in hell. It's just that, um, uh, well, we rejected it, and he's actually not there necessarily uh, fighting for you. But Lewis says, you know, you have this opportunity, right? The doors are locked from the inside, so you don't, you don't have to stay in there. You, don't, you can get to the bus stop. But does that really happen? And, and that, I think that's, that's kind of an interesting thought, right? Because it leaves the possibility for God to be forever merciful. But at the same time, the reality, once you're in hell, are you, are you really ever going to, to use the image, are you going to ever show up at the bus stop and wait? Uh, by the way, I mean, so this, this is kind of the, the peculiar image. The guy just shows up. He's there. It's like he stumbles upon the bus stop as if there's somebody else's, ha- you know, kind of, it, he's not the one always in control right there. The other aspect, too, about the bus is they're fighting to stand in line, but do they really need to? No, it's not any like half full, right? So that, that even goes, shows that, the, I mean, there's millions and millions and millions of people down there, and they don't even have enough to fill up a bus. So, so this, I mean, it's kind of this reality thing. Yes, the doors are unlocked, I mean, are locked from the inside, but at the same time, does, does anybody ever really walk out? Okay, Holly. Well, this is good. Yeah, this is good. So this is uh, very important for us, and I think I, uh, um, I, I think it says in the preface, maybe, but of the book. So um, endings, you know, right? We think, you know, if we always just have one more chance, it's always good and it's great. But the Bible does talk about endings, and and new, well, obviously new beginnings, but en- like the ending that it really will end. And I think I think the book actually is not a like forever and ever. It's this time because when uh, the narrator and the, the intelligent man, I think again, uh, are talking, they start talking about something that they're not supposed to talk about. Someone hasn't come around yet, and you're not sure exactly who it is. Uh, who did you guys think it was? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, we don't know yet. I, I kind of let the cat out of the bag there. Oh yeah, right. So that's that's another thing that we should probably talk about. Um, but but the whole point though is is that during their discussion, there's there's something on the horizon in a sense 
that's going to come, and when it comes, it's it's kind of going to be over. And they're kind of they're kind of living in denial. They just don't want to talk about it, as if you know, if they don't talk about it, then it won't come. I think Lewis is hinting at this end, is that there will come a point in time where things will stop and and change fundamentally. The new heavens, the new earth. And um, but of course that's all worked out in God's timing, not our timing. And this is worked out in a way that we don't we can't necessarily comprehend. And that's why Lewis makes this statement in the preface, right? It's a fantasy. Don't take it literally, which hopefully we're not. I mean, it's it's a it's a great discussion book. So so Holly so Holly's fear, you know, like this idea is that the world will never end. Uh, that is that's a fear. We should we should we do want. I mean, it, it's a healthy desire because when things end, what will end with it? Yeah, death, sin, illness, all these terrible things. This is another reason why. So this actually goes back to creation in the in the book of Genesis. God said, uh, you know, Adam and Eve sinned, and God said, oh man, we got we got to get them out of here. Because what would they what, what what they might do? Tree of life, and what would happen then? They would never die. But what would they be like? They would be forever sinners. This is this again. This is kind of the 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 this this the notion that we think. Oh man, it would be awesome. Well, first of all, watch Frankenstein. Read Frankenstein, right? Because what he doesn't die, right? And he thinks it's a terrible thing, right? Um, Highlander. You guys even know this sword fighter from Highlands? He right, but oh yeah, he does die, <laughs> but he doesn't die forever and ever. You know, it's this awful thing about living forever. Um, it, it's a lot of it's, it's it's kind of interesting. But anyways, okay. So the whole point though is is that there has to be an end, and God establishes a boundary for them to obviously to not be able to go back to the tree of life. But when that happens, they can they die, and death. When you die, what do you no longer do? Is your sinful life. Your sinful life is done. Of course, when we enter into holy baptism, we enter into the death of... Oh, I forgot to mention, we have a beautiful picture drawn up here by Jacob Simpson, who uh, is, is Tina's son here. So, And, uh, of course, he's drawing a uh, necros person. And uh, he's uh, that right there is a baptizer. He's throwing three uh, splashes of water. It's a picture of baptism. So you know, in baptism we enter into the death of Christ, and of course Christ's death doesn't stay dead. It rises again to walk in the newness of life. So for those of us who've been baptized, we've entered into this death already. Death is behind us. So that when we look to our kind of physical death, earthly death, we realize that it, it, it's the end of our sinful life. We're going to enter into this, this newness of life. Something that we already have, but not in its fullness, not its entirely entirety. But from God's perspective, we do have it already. Um, Oh, okay. So, so the you know, so the end, the end is, is is it can be a good thing. Death is is a is a a vehicle for uh, new life because God can God redeems it, 
And that's why, well, yeah, okay, good. Krista. Uh, I just was thinking, how was the time um, when Noah lived? You know, I think there was a time too. Right. That um, everything was internal. That's right, and it had to end. And, and the ending was, was, was uh, uh, ultimately, that was, that was good, because then, the, well, it stopped for about 152 days. Right, they were they were from beginning to end, 150, and then like two days later, right, all hell broke loose again. All right, so um, but yeah, right. So, so there's 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 plenty of examples of that, um, and so that's why in this in this kind of fantasy, the time is is kind of a, a playful thing. Okay, um, any anything else? Because we we just start. I, I raise a bunch of questions and biblical thoughts and. Ideas. Yeah, Aaron. I thought it was interesting, like the the response of the people in hell, whatever, to to this fear. Yeah, right. Sort of like they're they're having this conversation about, um, you know, there's sort of this like this rumor going around that the darkness is coming. Right. Right. And the feeling of safety, even though these houses don't even keep out the rain. Right. So it's like they have these illusions of protecting themselves from, from this, this thing that's coming. That's right. And then even like the guy who kind of jumps into the conversation after, where he's like, oh, I overheard your conversation, and I just want to tell you, like, that's all just a rumor. Right. No evidence of that. And, <laughs> like, this is, this is actually a wonderful place where we're free of material. Right. It's sort of like those two responses. One is like building up these false protections against the fear, and then one is saying like, oh no, there's actually nothing to it. Yeah, right. It's sort of like... Well, they're both lies. Yeah, they're both lies, basically, in a sense. Or delusional or whatever. Um, well, yeah, right. So the house, obviously. You're like, okay. The house doesn't protect you from anything. Nothing. Not even, not even the rain falling. But of course, if you're inside the house, you can imagine it. Hey, maybe if I built a stronger house, maybe a castle, I'll imagine. Boom. So you're always uh, you're trying to seek this protection. What I, what I found most interesting, though, was the guy's response saying, oh, well, just don't be afraid. I know you're afraid, but just, just, just uh, stop being afraid. I mean, I, I mean, I feel like that is like, like so typical of people's advice. Well, you don't have anything to be afraid of. Well, that's exactly right, right? I, 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 th- I think about it all the time where I'm like, you don't have to be afraid. Don't worry about it. And, of course, that doesn't really help them, does it? As much as I really would like it to help them. Every time I say it to them. Well, the thing is, it is true, right? They really don't have to be afraid, but how am I able to articulate that to them? Well, I, gotta, I know in my mind I have to get down and I have to be able to relate to them, and then from inside that fear I have to lead them out of it. Well, that's easier said than done because I'm not eight years old anymore and I don't know how to do it. So there's a lot of problems. Now, that's a little different than what's happening in the book because in the book... There is a real fear, and them saying, don't fear it, the, the fact that they're afraid actually might be speaking 
truthfully to them. Like, this is something to be afraid of. And just ignoring it or pretending doesn't change it. That's why, um, well, yeah, okay. Uh, we, will, we will see that same sort of mentality with a lot of the other characters. Um, I, the problem is, is I don't remember, they don't really have names. So it's like the, uh, you know, nagging wife one. And I, so there's a couple characters later, and I believe, I believe it's, it's a discussion between uh, these pastors, these Episcopal pastors, where like the one guy is saying, hey, you are in hell. So, oh, so I, I never, I've never said this. Um, so you have people from heaven who meet them at the bus stop, basically, are trying to lead them up to, the, to heaven to help them. And it's usually somebody they know. So in case in point, there's some Episcopal pastor kind of ro- roaming around, and someone he knows from his past who is, lives in heaven comes down and meets him. And um, he basically says, hey, you know, uh, 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 the guy who comes from the grace town says, oh, hey, you were wrong about heaven and hell. And he's like, well, no, what? what? Like, what are you talking about? You just, you came from this place. And he goes, it's not so bad. Um, he's like, well, yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, he I'm, I mean, paraphrasing, so... Um, and he's like, no, it, it, it's, it's not so bad. And he goes, well, no, it was hell. And he's like, well, don't be so dogmatic about it. That's a bit judgmental. <laughs> but the whole conversation, though, is this idea is that, like, as long as we, we kind of just call it something else or we, we just kind of pretend that, you know, it can't be that extreme, it can't really be either or, that it's just going to be okay. And uh, that conversation for me is, is very interesting because... You know, of course, the pastors, but the idea is that, you know, at some time you have to say this is what the Bible says. I mean, it, it says this, and 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 not that. And so, anyways, th- that that's that's one in particular. But there's a couple other ones where, um, people just pretend that's not so bad. And it's and it's usually the problem of the person from heaven. Like, don't act that way. That's the reason why things are all screwed up. It's because of you. Yeah. All right. Any other things? Because I uh, we can we can turn in the gospel. Yeah, Krista. No, there are absolutely no joy. In fact, I uh, so their reaction to the bus driver. So you have a bus driver who's like full of light, and what do they all say about him? Yeah, who's this guy? Well, he thinks he's better than everybody. All these things. I mean, they totally judge him. But what are they saying? He's judging us. It's a very peculiar thing. So why would they react to this way? And I think it's because they have zero joy. Anything that's light is repulsive to them. And, of course, I know somebody brought it up earlier when they get to the end of the magic bus ride and light starts coming into the bus and they can't take it anymore. Uh, it shows what they really look like. And do they are they pretty people? No. no. Ugh. They're they're they're. Well, I don't think I might have. I don't know if I quoted it or not, but it's pretty. 
Oh, they're, they were all fixed faces, full not of possibilities, but impossibilities. And then I caught a sight of my own. He realizes that, oof, he, he don't look so good either. Um, okay, the, this basic premise about you can't take anything with you, there's no luggage, um, obviously is, is brought up in Holy Scripture. And, and, and there's a, I just picked out three passages in the Gospel of Luke. And we'll just do this real quickly because I, I, it's helpful for us to. I'm going to do it backwards too. So uh, Luke 14 starts at verse 12. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's 32, uh, 32 verses. But 14 starting at verse 12 and going up through 33, so 21 verses. Sorry. Jesus tells this parable of the great banquet. And, it, and it's, a, you know, it's a real real nice banquet. And, um, you know, don't invite those who can pay you back. Um, you know, you know it's, it's, a, it's a free 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 banquet, basically. And he tells this parable about how there was a time for a banquet. This guy sent the servants out. Hey, everything's ready. But people started making excuses why they couldn't come. I bought a field. I must go out and see it. Uh, I've, I bought five yoke of oxen. You know, I married my wife. I married a wife, which is kind of peculiar. Um, can't come. Well, okay. I, okay, I mean, you know, when we read this, I mean, even if we go into the cultural context, e- even from the cultural context, these three excuses are silly excuses. I mean... I bought a field. I mean, is, is the field going somewhere? I mean, I don't understand what you need to do. Um, yeah. I mean, other thing too. I married a wife. Like, bring her along. I don't know. Anyways, so so it, it, it's this it's this parable where, of course, there's great tragedy in it because they don't go to this amazing thing because of some silly excuses. They're not willing to let go of these things in order to partake and participate in the, the great banquet. And then what I read in chapel was the last section, 25 through 33, the cost of discipleship. And when Jesus talks about hating the father, mother, children, all that stuff, that's a Hebrew idiom for you. Jesus has to be number one. And there is no, like, halvesies with number one. It is... Number one, everything, yeah. It's all or nothing. So he doesn't really say you have to like have this animosity towards these people. It's, you can't. Um, and, and it's pretty. It's pretty. Uh, uh, um, it, there's really no like, you know. This is not gray language. This is not gray town. This is black and white town. Verse 33, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That is plain and simple. Boom. Of course, for parents and family members, that's hard. Because I don't want to renounce my children. But that's what Jesus is saying. That's hard. Okay, the other one is, uh, oh, uh, chapter 9. Again, the cost of following Jesus. Um, we have a very similar thing uh, where 
Jesus says, uh, so starting at verse 59, chapter 9, verse 59. To another, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Can't look backwards in order to enter into the kingdom of God. So as you read, as you read the story, he's, you see manifestations of these kind of people and what it takes to renounce everything and to not look back. Now, of course, we actually see this in the gospel, in, in uh, chapter 5, in the calling of the first disciples. And I'm only going to uh, read the, the... So, chapter 5, Jesus calls the first disciples, which are Peter and Andrew. And James and John, and then, um, but five verse eleven. And when they had brought their boats to land, they let they left everything and followed him. Uh, everything means everything. It's, it's just not. I mean, I think I think when we read it right away in the beginning of the gospel, a little of us kind of put the end as if the disciples know what's all going to happen. But they left everything. That means they don't have any what? They have no knapsack. They have no outer coat. Jesus says this later in Luke. When you go out, don't take a coat. Don't take a this. Don't take money. So he's just reiterating what he said earlier. And then uh, Jesus calls Levi. That's verse 30, um, not 32. 28, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So this is what Lewis is talking about. When you, you can't enter the kingdom of God hanging on anything. There's no luggage. You don't show up with your bags packed. You got nothing. Um, and it's that radicalness that is how it's going to work out. Now, of course, for us here at earth, we, we, that's impossible for us. We, we hang on to something, even if it's the image of ourselves. It might not be material things, but it might be what we think about ourselves. And we'll see that in the great divorce. The great thing, though, is, is that it's not up to us to renounce everything. God is working in our life to get to that point where we have, I mean, where we give up everything. And what's interesting is, is that it might be on our way to to the, to the heavenly paradise where we finally are able to do that. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's something for us to think about. And I think about, yeah. So it might not be, you know, whatever, your second car, or I don't know, a coat. It could be that kind of stuff. But it could be what you think about yourself. You have to give up on that. Okay. Anywho, it's, uh, it's very, it's, that's very radical. But that is something that is in, in scripture. Um, I think I don't. Well, let's see here. There was a couple of things. We already talked about them having no needs. Um, we talked about loneliness and isolation. Oh, how are the poet and Napoleon similar with regards to the reason they failed or sinned? Yeah. Um, 
I think I think this is something that we we it's our default again. We just you know it's got to be somebody else's fault. The poet and Napoleon, how are they similar with re- the reasons why they've sinned or failed? And it's every it's everyone else's fault. They failed. They they didn't actually fail. Other people failed them, and subsequently, then they, yeah. Um, it, it will be so interesting, because I, I think Lewis does a good job when he writes that we fall into this trap. We're like, oh, yeah, it was that person's fault. Even if it's the person that we associate with. Like, it, it's something where I think we always have to be on guard. Anyways, um, I, th- I think anything else? I don't, I don't, I mean, hopefully, uh, if you got a chance to, to uh, I'm sorry, if you didn't have a chance to read it, it's like 17 pages, it's not very long, and you will like the last book, and then the Jennifer Fulwiler book earlier, you will want to read more than we assign, and that's okay, go ahead, do it, um, because when I, I, I mean, I just kind of reviewed it, and I was like, oh man, I just, I want to, I want to keep reading, because I want to find out what's going to happen to this guy, but, so that's okay, you don't you don't have to be stuck on just the two chapters. But we, we are going to kind of spend a little time ruminating in some of this imagery and these characters. So uh, as you, as you uh, read the next two chapters, think about the characters and these ba- the basic premise of how are they turned in on themselves and what are they not letting go. And subsequently, what is the person who's meeting them trying to, to, yeah, to, to get them to let go of? And I think that will be real helpful for a discussion. And, and then, of course, your own personal change in following Jesus, too. So, uh, great. If not, we'll pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. See you next week.